This is Kent Anderson, and you're listening to the Urban to Country Podcast. Welcome to the Urban to Country Podcast, a collection of inspiring and edifying conversations with amazing people. Our conversations cover everything from hunting and conservation, to mindful living, to how to be a good human. Basically, all the good stuff. Hey friends, welcome back to the Urban to Country podcast. On this episode, I sit down with one of my personal heroes and one of the fathers of modern elk calling, Rocky Jacobson. Rocky is the founder of Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls and the designer of the dome and pallet plate diaphragm calls. His innovations have shaped the landscape of modern elk hunting and have inspired numerous hunters to venture into the elk woods. My friend and fellow elk hunter, Kent Anderson, sits in as my co-host on this episode. Kent is a pro staff member for Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls and has competed at the national level in elk calling. We talk about the history of elk calling and of Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. We talk about cars, how to call elk, why elk get call shy, lessons learned from our lives in the outdoors, the commercialization of hunting, personal ethics, and many other topics. This episode is a laid-back conversation between good friends, and I hope you enjoy our banner as Kent and I interview a true legend, Rocky Jacobson. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Urban to Country podcast. We are here at Capital Sports and Western Wear in Helena, Montana. Uh, Ed was nice enough to let us sit in here and use his space. Uh, they are doing a, a really cool three days of elk camp in preparation for this upcoming hunting season. So huge thank you to Capital Sports for letting us come on in here. I've got a co-host today, which is kind of cool. You're actually, I think, the first co-host I've ever had, Kent. Probably. Yeah. So everybody, I hope you remember Kent. If you you don't know who he is, he's done a couple episodes so far on the podcast. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here, man. Appreciate you uh, helping me get this pulled together. Oh, you bet. And we have uh, the honor today of talking with uh, none other than Rocky Jacobson. And Rocky, say hi to everybody. Hi, guys. <laughs> and girls. And girls, yeah. <coughs> Especially uh, the girls. I like girls. <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> uh, man, we, we are just really grateful that you made the time to sit down and, and talk a little bit about yourself and about elk hunting, which we all are, are huge fans of here. So, uh I like to I like to start out by asking folks this question to kind of set the stage. Do you remember your first car? <laughs> My first yeah, car. What was your first car? <clears throat> 1952 Ford Fairlane. Nice. Do you yeah. still have it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be wealthy if I did. <laughs> uh, Ken, do you remember yours? I had a 1984 F-150 that my dad gave me. Very cool. Yeah, I had an 87 Ford Tempo. So yeah. not, not anywhere near as cool as you guys, but... Can I ask uh, sure. what your favorite car is, model? Oh, man. Uh, probably, and I, I'm really bad with uh, with mo- makes and models, but it's the Ferrari that Magnum PI drives in the show. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the, the make of that Ferrari was. Yeah. But that's mine. What's yours? Actually, a 1970 Chevelle SS. Oh, that's a cool car. 396. That's a very cool yeah. car. I had three of them. Really? Yes. At one time, I started off with a 65 Chevelle SS, sold it for $800. <clears throat> if you can imagine what they're worth now. 
Oh, man. And then I went to the 70, 71, and 72. And I had all three of those. And still the 70 is my favorite. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Grew up in the era of the muscle car time. Dragging the guts in big town of Orfino. <laughs> <laughs> Laying rubber for a half a block and the cops chase you. And, yeah. and eventually give up. Yeah, they give up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Do you have a favorite, Kent? Uh, mine would be from my dad. He always spoke about his 65 Mustang that he had his senior year of high school. And I think he said at that time he paid 2500 bucks for it right off the lot. And so it definitely tells you the difference in buying a car now off the lot compared to then. But... It was a uh, candy apple red, and it was a 65 Mustang. So that's kind of been always what I would like to find at some point, but haven't ever pursued it. Yeah. Well, Rocky, we wanted to uh, sit down with you because you, uh, you've you inspired both of us, I think is safe to say. And um, one of my favorite films of all time, both Hollywood, you know, any any film out there is The Linguist. And you uh, that's a, a story about you and some of the other uh founding fathers, so to speak, of elk calling. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who, um, who you are, where you grew up, and, and uh, lead us into your life story a little bit. Well, first of all, I felt very honored to be part of the Linquist, especially to be associated with <coughs> Will Primos and Wayne Carlton and Larry Jones. It's, that's a, quite an honor to be put into that position. But... Um, I started out hunting in the late 60s. I was still in high school, and I mostly rifle hunted then, but I was pursuing the archery uh, with a recur bow and couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, but I at least tried. And, uh, and then the 70s come around, and the compounds started coming out, and uh, th that is about the time they switched in Idaho from either sex hunting to bulls only. And so we as kids, grew up just hunting cows. We didn't shoot bulls. <clears throat> Not that we probably wouldn't have if one would have stepped out in front of us, but when you seen an elk, you shot it. Right. And uh, it had to be a cow. So when they changed it to bulls only, uh, we had to figure out how to shoot a bull because they weren't running around the woods everywhere like cows are. And we figured the best way to do that was learn how to call them and try to find an elk call in those days. There just wasn't much out there. You had to use... Uh, your own voice, which I did a lot of until I got older, and then the voice went away. But we tried to make our own elk calls out of garden hose, any type of PVC pipe. You'd cut a notch in it and put a plug in it and blow on it. And they had the old copper curly cues okay. that they had, and uh, we tried them. And, yeah, you get an elk to answer you once in a while, but not close range. So started pursuing the diaphragm end of things. And at that time, turkey calls, the only thing that was on the market. There mm -hmm. was no elk diaphragm to speak of. And uh, <coughs> turkey diaphragms just didn't last very long. <laughs> you blow on them real hard, and they just break up and cut out. But at that time, they were better than nothing. Right. And then I run into a guy. His name was Jerry Johnson. He's the founder of Golden Eagle Archery. Mm -hmm. And he had a diaphragm made for elk calls called Golden Tone. And that was in the late 70s. <coughs> And it worked pretty darn good. Uh, you still had to be a person that could learn how to use a diaphragm. They were hard, even though uh, some of us could make them work. A lot of people couldn't. Right. And then uh, Larry Jones, Wayne Carlton finally hit the market with their calls. And they had a lot of external type calls and diaphragms. And they seemed to be a little easier than what we had in the prior years. 
And those guys knew how to market things, so they got into the world of marketing their calls where Jerry Johnson didn't. He just kind of gave them to his friends, and that was the end of it. Uh, but the diaphragm mouth call was still hard to use. Uh, it was open on both sides. You had the latex in the middle with your frame, your horseshoe frame, and then tape on it. And uh, they were still hard to use. I can remember the first one I put in my mouth, I spent two weeks, and I couldn't get a sound out of it. Oh, jeez. Just, I was just frustrated, and I was at a baseball game, and I had it in my mouth, and I finally just got tired, and I just sat down on the bleachers of the call. This little three-year-old kid come by. You know how little kids are. They seen that, grabbed it put it in his mouth and he walks off with it I'm sitting there going <laughs> well that's a good place for that call it didn't work anyway Bruce and he's over there squawking on it no way yeah making noises it weren't elk noises but he was making noises and I couldn't even get a sound out of it and I said dang I gotta be able to do that if a three-year-old can beat me <laughs> so I got another diaphragm I just let him have that one and I went home and started playing and all of a sudden one day it was just like oh that's how you do it but it was still hard you had to have the call position in your mouth just the right angle, the right shape to seal it and make it work. <clears throat> and then years went by of hunting like that, and we got the job done because there was a lot more elk in those days, and they weren't so hunted hard that they were pressured. And, and uh, I finally tied up with a guy named Ralph Moline, Abe and Sons Natural Elk Sounds Calls, and uh, he brought his call to me in a prototype uh, made out of PVC pipe, and the tube was made out of squeegee bottles. No way. <clears throat> yep, and that was his prototype. And I had been entering a few local and state calling championships and had been winning most of them because I used my voice and a diaphragm together. And I also had been guiding for several other outfitters. So my name started to flow in the elk hunting industry to people heard about it. And uh, Ralph come to me and says, I got this elk call, I want you to try it. So I took it and I looked at it and I was well, kind of unique. It's an external call with latex draped over a mouthpiece and it had a plate behind it. And I was like, what's that plate doing back here? Because diaphragms are open on both sides. So he kind of explained it to me. Well, I blew it and I kind of went, huh, it does work a little easier, but I can tell you if we do this to it, it'll make it better. And he goes, what? So give me a round file. So I cut a little notch in that little plate behind there so the latex in the middle would form a dimple and make that sound a lot better yeah. and more controllable. And I blew on that, and I went, oh, there you go. Now you got your elk call. <laughs> <laughs> and he blew on it, and he goes, dog, gone. So he says, I'm going to make you a deal. that I'm going to maybe try to give you part of the company if you'll take this call and go to the Worlds in Colorado this year and try the World Championship, and if you win with it, said I might work a deal with you I said okay so we loaded up and uh, we headed to the world championship uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation put on in Colorado and that was in 1992 okay and that was the first year they switched it from men's open to a world's championship and uh, <coughs> his son Tony Moline was riding with us and every time I bugle in the pickup practicing he'd match it and I was like dang how did you learn to do that so quick he learned every sound that I did, and he matched it to the T. Well, we both entered the contest, and in the preliminaries, uh, I won the preliminaries, and Tony got second. And there was like <laughs> 35 or 40 of us up on a stage. Wow. And they did it a little different back in those days as far as judging, but uh, I went back to the hotel that night, and I said, man, i got to figure out some way 
to be able to beat this kid because he's good. He really is. He could he could beat me. So I was standing there in the shower and I looked down at my shampoo bottle and I go, huh. So I took that shampoo, dumped it out, I slid it down with a pair of scissors I had in the room and turned it into a funnel. And I stuck that in the end of those squeegee tubes and had the external PVC mouthpiece on there. And I let that rip and I went, holy cow. I said, there are some sounds there that we've never heard in the woods before. <laughs> they were in the next room next to me and they just come in and I let one of those sounds rip off, and they started hammering on the door. I said, what the heck are you doing in there? <laughs> they could tell the difference that much. Yeah. But I wouldn't let them look at it. So the next day, the, the finals were there. I went up on stage, <clears throat> and when I walked out on stage with that funny-looking shampoo bottle on the end, the whole audience started laughing. They started pointing at that call and started <laughs> laughing, and I was like, all right, here she goes. So I got to let off the first rip of the bugle, and that whole place was dead silent. It was like, holy cow. And I let it rip several more times, did some cow calling, and uh, ended up winning the world championship the first time for me in 1992. And uh, kind of set Abe and Sons on the map because of that. Uh, I never ended up getting anything from him. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, down the road a little further, I decided that a mouth called diaphragm was what everybody wanted to learn to use. So there's gotta be a way to make a diaphragm mouth call better and easier to use. And it's just like a light bulb. Why don't you just put a plate on the back of it like Abe did on external? Mm. He had a patent on it, but only on an external call. He didn't have it on a mouth call, which is totally different. So I played around with some pieces of aluminum, cutting it out, folding it in half, putting latex in it, which was back in those days was gloves. That's all you had. You didn't have the rolls of latex like we could do now. So you were cutting down gloves? Gloves. Wow. Surgical gloves. Yeah. And then laying that latex in there and uh, folding them in half and putting some duct tape around them, silver duct tape. <laughs> and the <laughs> first one I actually built, I took a, a plastic spoon and I cut it off and made the dome-shaped part of the plastic spoon and glued it on top of that diaphragm. Mm -hmm. And I put it in my mouth and blew it and I went, oh my goodness, there's a difference. Yep. I could tell instantly, but I had some problems with getting cow calls and bulls both out of the same call. So I had to play around with it, and I started cutting and filing. And, and then I figured out that plastic wasn't going to last very long because it kept breaking and it wouldn't stay glued on. Um, I messed around with some aluminum pieces of sheets of aluminum, and I'd take a hacksaw and a drill bit, and I'd cut out slots, and I'd bend the tab up and uh, build them that way. And pretty soon, I hit it. I got the right angle, the right shape, and uh, the call worked really good. Well, I had no clue how to manufacture those calls, and I knew I couldn't do it with a hacksaw and a drill bit. <clears throat> so I went to a manufacturer guy that did tool and die making for Chevrolet, and they quoted me a price of $60,000 to do a mold to cut make that. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at selling, <laughs> selling maybe 100 diaphragms a year at five bucks a pop. Back then, I think it was $3 a pop. I said, I'll never pay for that. Well, another guy told me about uh, a guy that used to work for Browning Gun, tool and die maker, and he uh, said, looked at it, he said, yeah, I can do it for about 12. And I thought, 12,000, well, that's better than 60. <laughs> and he just said 12. And I said, all right, I'm gonna bite the bullet. So we had him do it. He called me and I went up to pick it up. And he says, I said to him, I said, how much do you? He goes, 12, like I said. 
I said, all right. So I started right at checkout for 12000 He said, no, 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 no. He said, $1,200. Oh, wow. I just about flipped. <laughs> I said, wow. Now, really? I said, and he goes, yeah, 1200 bucks. That's all I want. So that was the start of the pallet plate diaphragm. Um, I put a patent on it, got a patent applied, and got it accepted, and I uh, went to my first show in uh, Michigan. It was called Anderson Archery, and I was standing there selling calls, and I was also an outfitter at the time for elk hunting, and I was trying to book hunts and sell diaphragms and make a few pennies here and there. And this guy walks up to me and said, I want to buy that black tape one. I said, okay, so he took it, and he said, can I borrow your tube? And he said, yeah. He takes and puts it in his mouth, and he lets one rip, and I went, he's not too bad <laughs> you know and he said man he said that is the best diaphragm i've ever used and he stuck his hand out and he said i'm will primos no way and i go who's will primos <laughs> <laughs> i've heard of wayne carlton <laughs> anyway i had heard of will primos but it didn't dawn on me who he was sure at yeah. first and i was like oh will primos primos game call company all right and he says uh I'm going to go home and start building these calls myself. And I go, well, I've got a patent on them. He goes, I don't give a rip about no patent. <laughs> so I go, well, you better. He says, yeah, we got a little talking here to do. I said, like what? And he said, you got to realize that every company out there is going to want to copy this call. And if you haven't got money to defend it in court, that you're going to lose it. Everybody, every company out there is going to take this call from you because it's that good. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm going to make you a deal. So we sat down and talked for six hours. I called my lawyer, and the lawyer said, man, you can't pass up a deal like that. So I ended up selling Will Primo's the patent, but I maintained my rights to where I could manufacture it still underneath my own name. Mm. And he had to pay me royalties on everything he sold for the next 20 years. And uh, it come down to the wire one day where another company decided to try and copy the pallet plate diaphragm. And uh, I won't mention any names, which company it is. Most <laughs> people know who it is. But uh, anyway, it went to court. And uh, $2.5 million later in court costs, lawyer fees, uh, if it had been up to me, I would have lost a long time ago. But Will Primos defended that patent to the end, and he ended up winning. And uh, I can't remember the exact figure. I know that they, they wore got awarded nine million dollars in lost sales and privileges and all that in stores but wow. i think they settled out of court for four and a half million hmm. <clears throat> so that just showed that the importance that this call was oh, yeah, especially absolutely. to will primos yeah uh, and it become the pallet plate design become the number one seller i don't care who made it uh, it's what everybody's after the patent ran out three years ago and so now you see every call company out there copying what I did at, at the beginning. Some of them make them exactly like I do. Some of them have changed the angles a little bit. But at that time, our patent covered every angle, position you could talk about. So nobody could ever copy it. But the patent went out and everybody jumped on the bandwagon. So, mm -hmm. Which I knew was going to happen. And some of the companies I don't care because they've changed them enough that isn't like ours. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple companies out there that are copyists to the T. Didn't change nothing. Yeah. They made them look just like ours. So that part of it, I wish that they would do something different, but they haven't yet. So. Yeah. 
And I remember when I didn't realize that the patent had ran out. I didn't know a lot of that history. I knew probably 10% of what you just shared, but I do remember a difference getting ready for elk season, walking into the store and seeing, it's like, why is everybody copying Rocky Mountain calls all of a sudden? And now that you share that, it makes sense. And I, I do remember exactly like that year that that happened. That's crazy. Yeah. But what's really funny is 90% of the companies that are copying them now uh, in the beginning said that call is a joke. It'll never work. <laughs> you can't get it off of, off the ground. It's just it's dead in the water. And uh, look at it now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you look back over this life of developing this company and all these patents that you developed, and uh, <laughs> if you, you know, if, you, if somebody came to you when you were 15 years old and said, hey, this is going to be your life in 2019 would you have believed them where you're at now oh absolutely not Uh, that's a good sound yeah (laughs) elk bugling at me i'm gonna have to shut it off (laughs) you guys hear that all right huh it's a good sound (laughs) now now where were we uh (laughs) going back to if when you were 15 if you saw you know 2019 where you're at now would you believe it (sighs) not at all because and when I was growing up and had to get into the working world, um, all I knew how to do was run a chainsaw. Mm. And uh, I went to work in the woods falling timber and never had a business mind at all. I was very enge- engineering designing type person. I could take a piece of duct tape and bailing wire and a pair of pliers and build you something. Uh, we had to learn to do that because out in the woods when you're working, if something breaks down, you had to fix it there. You didn't get to take it to town and get it fixed. You had to get by or you'd you'd go broke. So I did a lot of improvising on things and learned how to do that. But uh, once I decided to build that call, I had, had to learn all the business end of things. And it was a mind opener to me. It was like, holy cow, there's a lot more to this stuff <laughs> than just walking up and selling a call to somebody. Um, and I started off wanting to make just enough money to pay for my hunting habits, which <laughs> at that time would have been around, you know, a couple thousand bucks a year would have been just great. Um, and it just kept going. I never did it for the intentions of becoming a star or having my name thrown out there in front of people. I did it sure. because I wanted to make a few dollars to go on hunts myself and to help some of my friends out as far as being able to bugle better Mm -hmm. and uh, it just caught on and pretty soon it was just like there's a demand for this Uh, meanwhile while the the diaphragm was hitting the market I was coming up with some other ideas to go along with it like different types of grunt tubes the bigger chambers the barrels uh, found out that there's a lot more to it than just building a tube you have to build back pressure into your tube you have to have the consistency Mm -hmm. of the right plastic the right length, everything. If you get them too big, they become blurry. They become un-elk sounding. If you get them too small, they just don't carry good enough in the woods. So there's a certain size, certain diameter, everything that's related to this. And you can kind of relate it to harmonics. Like an exhaust system, when you put headers on a car, if you get it too big and too open, you lose your power. You gotta have all that consistency flow together in your exhaust system to get all the horsepower and the good quality sounds coming out of your tailpipe. And it all begins at the very beginning where your mouthpiece is. Uh, Everything else that goes down the tube just amplifies 
what you start with. Gotcha. So if you start off bad, it's going to amplify bad. <laughs> and uh, that's something I figured out a long time ago. And so started building different sizes of grunt tubes. Uh, I come up with some external calls. I've actually got three patents now that have been awarded to me through the process, um, which is, I guess, you want to pat myself on the back a little. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> know, that's know, why we're here. To come out with some patents. I've got some more ideas that I'm working on. Uh, that could be patentable down the road. Very cool. If I don't die first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's been a lot of things happen to me that I've never, ever dreamed would happen. Uh, The the best thing that's really happened to me is being in the hunting industry and getting to meet people like Kent, you, Marcus, uh, becoming friends. Mm. That Mm -hmm. has, the hunting industry seems big, but all it is is a small little net of family people. And uh, it's really fun to go to the shows and see people and to meet people and uh, just good friends out there, good people in the hunting industry. Yep. And that's more important to me than anything. Yeah. So So going back when you're talking, when you first started uh, using calls, what was the elk hunting like back then compared to now as far as how it's progressed with the calls you're making? And was it a ton easier back then, or is it pretty similar? Well, if I uh, knew then what I know now, there wouldn't be any elk left. (laughs) 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 Yes, uh, and there's some factors that I'm going to bring up here to make people be aware of what's going on. Uh, Yeah, the elk are harder to call in nowadays. They don't respond as much as they used to in those days. But it's not because they're bugle-wise. An animal can't become bugle-wise. But they can become accustomed to certain sounds. They get to the point where they hear it so much that they ignore it. Back in the the old days, we had uh, a bull-to-cow ratio of around 45 bulls per 100 cows. Mm. Nowadays, we're lucky to get 10. 14 is probably a common average in most public land hunts. And anytime you drop below 25 and 30 bulls per hundred, elk won't bugle. There's no competition between them. They don't have to bugle. You got one guy out there that's the boss, and everybody knows it. You know, the cows know he's going to do the breeding, and the end of the story. That's why they don't bugle as much. But now you go to these zones that are controlled. Uh, they're managed to have big bulls, and and the bull ratio is up where it belongs. Those things bugle all the time. It doesn't matter how many hunters chase them around. You go to Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, where those bulls are like that, they bugle. Mm. You know, and uh, when you get out here where we hunt on public lands, you hear one bull bugle, you better get your tennis shoes on because there's five other guys chasing yeah. that bull. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they learn to be quiet under situations like that. But it's not, if they were bugle-wise, they wouldn't bugle at all. Right but they answer you and they walk away from you and to a certain point that same thing happened in the early days too they would bugle and leave because that it wasn't so much the herd bull pushing the cows away but the lead cow knows which bull they want to have breeding so they don't want these other bulls coming up and messing with them so the lead cow takes off with the cows the bulls follow Mm. and uh so it really is a a different ball game nowadays as far as the bull to cow ratio but the bugling is still the same they still do the same ritual 
they just don't bugle as much because there's no no competition to keep them going all day you know, that makes sense to you what i'm saying absolutely oh, yeah. okay and i think i've seen that in the last couple of years not so much that they're they're not scared or they're not in a panic it's that the bulls seem disinterested and then the cows the cows are the ones that seem to have an agenda <laughs> and they they tend to move on um so i i, I would agree with what you're saying i think that makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. i can go into <clears throat> into canyons where i know not a lot of people hunt because it's a little t- too tough or they just haven't figured out that there's there's elk there and uh, there may only be one herd bull and maybe a couple satellites there with six or eight cows, but I can get those, those bulls to come to me. But you have to do it in a different aspect. You can't just bugle and hope he's going to come running to you. You have to play that game of what's going on at that particular time. And uh, I still call in elk pretty readily on public land right behind other hunters. Yeah. They still come. And it's not because I'm so much better sounding bugler than anybody else, but I've learned how to put what I know into use other than just the sounds. I know how to present the call. I know how to put emotions into that call. I know where I have to be in a location right Mm. to make that animal want to come to me. Uh, You got to make that animal feel comfortable about wanting to come to you. Uh, sometimes you have to let him think he's got the wind and his advantage and can circle around you. And at the last moment, you have to pull out and get the wind back in your favor. And little, little tricks like that makes a big difference. And that only comes from experience. It's something that you can't really teach people. You can tell them about it, but until they get out in the woods and figure it out on their own and realize what happened, then it becomes an instinct. And that's once you develop an instinct for elk hunting and elk calling, it becomes a lot easier to you. But you have to have those instincts. If you were to give one piece of advice to someone that wants to start elk calling, what would be the number one <laughs> piece of advice? If they've never elk called before. Yep, they're a fresh palate for you to work with. <clears throat> you know, one of the best things to learn how to call is get with somebody that does know how to call. Because mimicking is very easy. Like when Kent and I do shows, and we sit down and teach people how to call elk. Cause we get a lot of people that never use diaphragm, never called elk. Uh, the number one thing we start off with is we make sure the diaphragm fits in the roof of their mouth. Mm. Because everybody's palate in the roof of their mouth is shaped different. Some of them are round, some of them are flat, some of them are high, some of them are wide, some narrow. And if you just take a wide diaphragm and stick it inside your narrow palate area, it's not gonna seal. You're not gonna get the air to go where it belongs. So that's the number one thing we try to do is teach people to get the right diaphragm to fit the roof of your mouth and then go from there. Um, to mimic somebody, is if we're in a booth selling the call to somebody, we'll sit there and do the sounds while they have the call in their mouth. And they can hear those sounds because they've never heard a real elk bugle. Most of them, that if they haven't ever called elk before, they've probably never heard an elk. Right. So by us doing that, they can learn to mimic that. But if you give somebody a call and say go home they'll never figure it out <laughs> no they'll get mad and throw it in the garbage can so those are two things that i would suggest is get the diaphragm to fit get with somebody that knows how to call and has been there before and have them help you uh, and then after that you've got to practice you cannot just learn it and then two days before a season comes around get up and go out to the woods because when it comes crunch time you don't think 
you'll screw it up. Mm -hmm. It all becomes <laughs> muscle there. memory to you, and you have to have that confidence knowing that you can make the sound at the right time. And then the other th big important thing is, is learn to be variable in all your calling. Don't mm. just be stuck with one sound that you learn because there's a lot of emotions involved in calling an elk in. And every day those animals act differently. You never know what they're gonna do from day to day. So you have to adjust to what they're doing. And uh, by making different sounds, there's a couple things that you accomplish. One thing is uh, animals in the woods, they pick up on sounds that are done the same over and over and over. Repetitious sounds become uh, unemotional to them. Mm. They don't pay any attention to it. So if you can mess up their brain with a whole bunch of different sounds, making it sound realistic, cow calling, calf calling, bull bugling, uh, all the way from location calls, display calls, challenge calls, figure out those different things and what they mean and apply those to that situation that happens that day, your calling success is going to really improve. So being versatile in your calling is really important. Do you agree with that, Ken? Oh, 100%. <laughs> and I would say from where I was at even 10 years ago, I haven't been elk hunting that long, but just learning to get more emotional with your call has probably been the number one piece that has helped me out year after year now i'll generally even start just with a soft cow call and then go into a location that's my general starting point and kind of see if i can find them and then start reacting to what they're doing and you know it, from my success in the last probably five years has greatly increased understanding elk and when i hear a bull kind of knowing where he's at because once i make a sound he knows right where i'm at so then it's just trying to put you know make that next move when it was Early on, I'd sit in one spot and call from one spot, hoping they'd come to me to where now, you know, you were, came out and hunted with me a couple of years ago to where we were actually walking into elk, and it's such a different tactic than I used to used to use to where I'm a lot more mobile, um, and that made such a huge difference. But you can't, you know, not get that emotion in there. He's exactly right. If I sit and do one call, they're going to figure it out. And the more you can do, the much the much more better you're going to be off, the more success you're going to find. Mm. <clears throat> well, nobody knows what mood an animal is going to be in until you can actually hear him say something back to you. So by starting off with what you call, what we call the location call, it's not aggressive, uh, it's not loud, and most elk will answer back to that sound because it's not intimidating to them. And then once that bull answers back to you, you can kind of determine what emotions he is having and what kind of a day he's having. He may have got his butt whooped <laughs> already, yeah. and he isn't going to come because he's scared to come in and get his butt whooped again. Yeah. You can still call that bull in once you realize that he's not going to come because he's intimidated. Mm -hmm. Do your nice, light little cow calls and forget the bull bugling. Yep. You know, just forget it because he's already been whooped by a bull. He doesn't want to take that chance. You know, another uh, instance is if you've got a bull that comes back with a high screaming just loud as it can be and chuckles hard, you better have an arrow knock because he's probably coming. Yeah. And he'll come in as long as the wind stays in his favor. Uh, so once he does those challenge calls back, what we call a challenge call, you can initiate your challenge call to him. You're on the same level. But I never start off with a challenge call because I don't know what that bull 
doing over there at gotcha. first. If I hammer a challenge call, he kind of goes, whoa, I don't want anything to do with this guy today. He just walks off, never says a thing. You don't even know if he's there. So learning the strategy of different sounds and how to apply that to the different days of what's going to happen uh, is really important. Yeah. really is. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned in my, my time as a hunter is the ability to adapt and be flexible. If you go in to any situations thinking, you know, this is the way it's going to be and I'm, I'm sticking to it no matter what, you got to be able to adapt. You got to be able to change on the fly. You got to adjust your plans because like you said, you don't know what kind of mood that animal has been in. Like you said, whether he just got run off or he's really happy with his herd or he wants to fight. I mean, it, it could be anything. And the flexibility and the ability to adapt, uh, I, I can't be understated. And it's, it's such a great thing that as I spend more time with hunters, you really notice that, that hunters tend to be pretty easygoing, more adaptable, willing to kind of go with the flow and change. And I think that comes from, you know, necessity, like you have to be able to adapt on the fly. Uh, one thing I was, uh, I kind of pulled some people and got some questions that, that folks wanted to uh, get your answers on, but what's, what role has conservation played as you've grown this business? Oh, <clears throat> as far as my end of conversation, conservation or. Sure. Yeah. How has, how has conservation shaped what you've done with your business? That is a good question. Um, <laughs> 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 As far as the the money end of things into conservation has put a lot more hunters in the woods mm -hmm. because of the business we operate with. We teach people how to hunt elk, how to call elk, so people are buying the products more readily. They're getting more confidence that they can do it. Um, so the money is going towards conservation. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure... I don't know how much money is spent a year on elk calls, but it's pretty phenomenal when yeah. you mm -hmm. think about <laughs> it. <clears throat> As a group like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, there's a lot of conservation that they have spent, and now that we are a sponsored uh, call company to them, a part of our money is donated to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and uh, so that's a, a good boost there, too, for the conservation of things. Um, as far as the animals surviving in the conservation <laughs> world, I'd have to say that they're probably dying a lot more because <laughs> people are learning how to call elk a lot easier and, and figuring it out. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some aspects there in the conservation world that's been contributed because of the call company. Yeah. yeah. I think, so I started elk hunting about six years ago um, and part of the reason I got into hunting was because I, I had this conservation ethic and I understood the connection between hunting and conservation. And I really made this conscious decision that I was going to spend my money with companies that gave back to conservation. And that was one of the motivating <coughs> factors for me using your calls. And because I saw the, the product you donated and the, the money and the time that your reps and your employees give back to conservation. And so I would say, that you've made a huge impact in conservation. Um, I think as, as any company, uh, you're making products that are intended to help us kill animals, of course, but for your part, you, your company does give back a lot to conservation. So I would, I would say from my perspective, you're uh, 
conservation has played a huge role in what all of you do. So thank you, I guess for, for all of us. Yeah. You know, that's, that's one way that I can feel like I contributed to the aspect of conservation is through the company. Cause a lot of times I don't have volunteer time to go mm-hmm. do things uh, that some people do like for the Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation. Yep. A lot of people have time to go volunteer to make efforts to make conservation better. And uh, my time is limited. So I do it through the sell of the calls that way. Yeah. And that's, that's a totally valid way to do it. And, and like you said, we can't all be out there, you know, pulling fence and digging ditches and all that kind of stuff. We got to give where we can give. And I think you guys definitely do that. Another, uh, another question that I got, and I thought this one was really interesting. Uh, one of my friends wanted me to ask you what you would hope our generation would do to continue your generation's legacy. <clears throat> well, ethics is going to play a, a big part in this. Um, sometimes I agree with the anti-hunters that we are too commercialized and we're mm. trying to shoot the biggest bulls, the biggest animals, um, and not just hunting just for the meat purposes to feed our family. So I agree with them to that point, but there's a lot of aspects out there that go along with uh, ethics. Uh, sometimes trophy hunters are killing the biggest animal and letting the other animals go to become bigger animals. Yep. So there's some good aspects by being a trophy hunter too at the same time. Um, the ethic part of things that I don't like is you pull up to a gate and you park your rig and get ready to go hunting and you're ready to head up a trailhead and in pulls five, six other rigs and follows you right up the trail. <laughs> I was like, come on guys, uh, go somewhere else. Yeah. Cause when I pull up to a trailhead or, a, and if there's rigs already there, you beat me to it guys. It's yours today. Yep. Uh, a lot of people go, well, there's plenty of room out there. There's not. When it comes to calling elk, there's not room for everybody. Yep. Uh, because you got to play that game. You can't have interruptions from the side coming in and, and hoping that you're going to get the, your animal to come to you when you got guys bugling on both sides. So, right. you know, remember the ethics part, uh, very serious situation. Um, always try to obey the laws as much as you can. Don't, you know, do things that are illegal because that takes it away the rights from everybody else too at the same time. Um, but as far as following our footsteps, that's going to be a tough road to haul because when I grew up, we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have TV. We didn't have people to teach us how to call, how to hunt. You know, we had to grow up learning a lot of that stuff on our own, making thousands of mistakes and learning from our mistakes. So as a generation nowadays, pay attention to your mistakes you make and realize that they are good to have mistakes. Mm. Don't watch everything you see on TV, on Facebook, and take it to heart because TV isn't true when it comes right down to it. If you see an elk shot in 30 seconds on TV, it probably took them a month to get all the footage <laughs> to get that accomplished. But uh, I guess I want you to realize that most of the guys that grew up in my era uh, had to learn it on their own. Mm. You know, they didn't have people to teach them. Even our dads and stuff didn't know anything about elk bugling elk because back in those days, you didn't worry about calling elk in. 
you worried about shooting a cow with a rifle and for meat. But when it come to bugling time, there was just a handful of us, like in the state of Idaho, uh, when I grew up, there was maybe 10, 12 people in the whole state that knew anything about calling elk. And uh, so we didn't have a lot of resources. I made a lot of mistakes, but they were fun mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I learned a lot from that. And so now I'm handing down what I've learned to the next generation. And uh, hopefully I've accomplished that. I know I have through both my kids. They've learned very well uh, how to hunt elk and how to call them. So, and they are handing it down to their kids too. So uh, hopefully it's never becomes a lost art. Yeah. But we all have to realize that just because you can bugle and an animal answers, that doesn't mean he's going to come every time you bugle. Yeah. You got to learn how to hunt an elk. You got to learn their habitat, know what they like to do, where they like to go. Put yourself in the position to where they are going to come to those sounds. But too many people think that every time you bugle, a bull should come running to you, and it doesn't work that way. Yeah. I've <clears throat> I've hunted Pertner every year, 30 days in a row, and there's been times I've come down to the last day, the last hour before I ever shoot my elk. Mm. Some days I've done it in the first hour, the first day, but <laughs> you, it just, uh, on public land, it just doesn't happen all the time. It's pretty, pretty iffy. Um, but I do go out there in the woods with the intentions of not if it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. And that's just a confidence builder. Mm. So when you're tired at night, you go back to your tent, your camper, whatever, you have that confidence to go, all right, tomorrow's another day. We can do it again and get out there and get after it. Even though your feet and your legs are so wore out, you just like, I'm sleeping in the morning, but anybody that's hunted with me knows that I don't miss a day. I don't care how tired, how sore, how broken of a leg I had. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard Can't. that story. Uh -huh. <laughs> we were out every day too. Um, I suffered, but I still pulled through it. Uh, the year I hunted with Kent, I had broke my leg and tore it up pretty bad and hadn't had, I had surgery done to it, but it was just cleaning it up and uh, it, it hurt so bad. I can't <laughs> imagine. I, I don't know how far we walked that one day, but. It was miles. <clears throat> yeah. On the way back out, I had to take one of those funny pills. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <it> did. <laughs> and Kent goes. What's so funny? <laughs> <laughs> a little more talkative. I heard bulls bugling everywhere. <laughs> it was crazy that day. But I didn't give up. And no. that's the thing about elk hunting is you've got to be very persistent and have that desire. And it's not the desire to kill something as it is the desire to be in the woods mm -hmm. and accomplish something that most people will never get to see in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And that's being in Mother Nature, seeing what's out there, the animals, how they act, uh, and sharing that with your friends. That's, that's the big thing to me. That's good. Well, what's new uh, on the horizon for Rocky Mountain hunting calls? What can we all expect in this next year or so? Well, I tell you, there's been some big changes take place in Rocky Mountain hunting calls since June. And I suppose I should announce it because it has been announced, but I ended up selling my company. <laughs> you wow. didn't know that, did you, I Marcus? did not know that, no. Congratulations, I guess. Um, yeah, it's been good. I had a lot of different p buyers want to buy it, 
<clears throat> some of them could have wrote me a check for a lot of money, but I wasn't interested in some of them because they just wanted it for a tax write-off. They couldn't care less where the company ended up. They didn't care whether uh, the products got sold or anything. They just wanted it just for a tax write-off. So I was very persistent about finding the right person. And uh, one day, uh, this guy who I've known for 25 years said, I want to buy your company. And I've done business with this guy in the hunting industry. And I said, really? I said, you know nothing about elk calling. He goes, that's it. He said, I don't want the company to change at all. He said, I want you in place, Kurt, all the employees. I don't want to move it. I just want to own the company and let you guys manage it and run it. Well, the company was growing so big and so fast that it's hard to get money from banks mm. that amount of money. Uh, they only loan you so much, and then you got to start putting collateral up, and uh, which wouldn't have been a problem, but I'm also 67 years old right now, <laughs> and retirement's kind of looking pretty good. Yeah. Not totally, but I, I've been thinking about it. So I ended up selling it to this guy, and nothing's changed. Um, they still got me on board. Uh, they pay me a retainer fee, and I'm still under research and development, designing new calls. Um, I am out promoting. They put me in charge of the pro staff, which mm -hmm. I think is a pretty good deal because everybody kind of relates to me in the pro staff industry, and um, that's where my friends are too. Right. So it works good. Um, so we'll see what happens after three years. But there are some new products coming out. Um, some of them may be available this year, but we always try to, our new products, get them out to our pro staff for the first year, especially in the fall, let them field test it, and then we come out with them in January. So mm. uh, we've got a couple things that we're gonna be coming out in January. So the average hunter isn't gonna get to play with the new calls. <laughs> <laughs> the Kent's here gr grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> going, oh, right. He looks happy. <laughs> yep. uh. You know, and one thing that I've found in the elk calling world and any type of animal calling world is you got to come out with different sounds, keep those animals' brains messed up. Yeah. And if you stay with the same sound like some of the companies have had for 25 years, animals just relate to that repetitious sounds. So by coming up with something new all the time, it's going to help us be able to overcome those animals remembering those sounds. Yeah. So, um, everybody goes, well, someday you're going to run out of ideas, and I'm going, yeah, probably when I'm six foot under, I'll run out of ideas. <laughs> but uh, it is getting tougher. It really is yeah. to figure out something new, something that just isn't cosmetic change, something that really actually works. That's the hard part. But uh, And it doesn't have to be in the elk world. It can be the turkey calling, predator calling. Mm -hmm. We've got some predator lines coming up that are awesome calls this year. They're really cool. Um, and predator hunting is getting very popular. The turkey world, that's a different world. Yeah, there's, yeah. I don't yeah. know how many turkey companies <laughs> are out there, but uh, we do have some pretty good turkey diaphragms and a box call and a slate call that really do their, do their job. So, um, and look for Rocky Mountain hunting calls to come out with products that aren't call related. Mm. You know, okay. but they'll be in the hunting industry and... Uh, uh, just something different. I'm not sure what it's going to be yet because the new owner 
he has a lot of stuff like that that he's never been able to put on the market because cool. he he is a manufacturer of products, not so much a company that pushes them to Cabela's, Bass right. Pro, or whatever. Very cool. Oh. Well, I think everybody is now on the edge of their seat waiting for January to roll around. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I've got one up with me that I'm going to be blowing tonight. Ooh. <laughs> Nobody gets to look at it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kent, what's your favorite call that Rocky makes? Well, there's several. Uh, you Michael, can only pick one. I don't have one. You're I can't say just one. There's too many. Well, I would say it's a, a really a system. Uh, I have an open read call that I use a ton and that came out a couple of years ago and that's the voodoo mm. makes a really really good sound it's a good one and then as far as diaphragm the reapers by far my favorite that's come out that's been an, uh, a definite go-to since that came out and then the whoppity whacker for a tube it's been hard to beat that one I know when I got sent that and I blew on it the first time I was just blown away uh, just the back pressure in it and the sound and and the vet mouthpiece and it, it's just a that's by far the best tube I've ever used. Uh, the new turkey calls. Um, the Captain Hook's been my go-to since that came out. Um, there's always something that comes out, it seems like, and it's like, man, that's just a little <laughs> bit better than the last <laughs> one I tried. Uh, and it's just amazing. But those are definitely my go-tos. Yeah. I love the Black Magic. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's the other one. That's, that's a really good one. Yeah. <laughs> that call works so easy. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable how much quality easy sounds come out of that it's so soft it's it just you know cow calls with that that's my go-to for sure is the black magic <coughs> the reaper the you can just literally do that just get into it and it, yeah. it, it's hard to top in that call out the very first call i ever designed and put on the market was a raging bull the very first diaphragm and i'm still very partial to it <laughs> <laughs> um it's still the number one seller uh is how it sells all of them but I'm kind of like Kent. I don't really, I can take any one of the calls we make and make them work yeah. to what they can do. But there's sometimes I'll put that raging bull in my mouth and I go, why do I switch? Yep. <laughs> Did that <laughs> two thing, years ago. Yeah, this thing just unreal. Yeah. Um, like the Wapiti Whacker tube, I've designed some other tube, but uh, the Wapiti Whacker has that uh, spring in the end of it. Mm -hmm. And that spring, people look at that and go, what the heck does that do? Well, I got the idea from karaoke microphones that, oh, yeah. that kids used to use without no batteries in them. No way. There's a fish line hung on a spring inside that microphone, and when you talk into it, it reverberates through that spring and broadcasts the sound out the top of the microphone, yeah. making it louder. So I took a spring and put inside the mouthpiece, and they have to be the certain length and everything else, and that's one thing I got patented on was that spring. We call it the VET system, Volume Enhanced Tone Technology, and uh, it makes the back pressure work really good. It stabilizes your note changes and it intensifies that high note. Without that, sometimes your high note will have a tendency to fade out on you. You hit it and it just kind of tapers off. Okay. But with that spring, it just increases it and reverberates. So like on a hot, hot day when you're elk hunting, when you try to bugle and the sound don't carry, yep. that spring will help make that sound carry on a hot day. And if you listen to it, you can hear it reverberate off those canyon walls, and it carries really good. And I don't care how big, how loud you are, you'll never be as loud as a real elk, no matter what. So don't statement. get the idea in your head that a big tube's going to scare everything away. <laughs> <laughs> it don't. Um, yeah. 
I've had elk and I've got videos to prove it three feet from me and bugling right in his face with my whoppity whacker tube and it was the bully bull tube at that time yeah it was the bully bull tube and uh, he just bugles right back at me it doesn't bother you know so you got to play that game of what they want to hear yep you know uh, so the bigger the tube doesn't mean you're going to intimidate that elk <laughs> the bigger the tube gives you more quality sound is right. what it does yeah and something that just came to mind as we were all talking about which calls we like and whatnot, I think one of the best things that you told me, Kent, when I first started and I was completely lost and I asked you for help was to, you just got to try lots of different calls. You got to mm-hmm. mess around with things until you find what works for you because everybody's mouse is different. And so for anybody that's listening, if you're either frustrated because you can't quite get it or you're new and you're going to start out, be prepared to try some a bunch of different diaphragm calls until you find that that one that fits your mouth right and that you can make work because everybody's going to be a little bit different so what works for me um is going to be different than what works for you and and that was probably the best piece of advice because i finally started just trying a bunch of different ones and finally found one i was like oh yeah this one this one i can make do what i wanted to do and then i just kind of learned from there yeah once you find that diaphragm uh you start you don't need to change to another diaphragm to get a bigger bull sound right or a smaller bull sound. You can do all the sounds on that one diaphragm. Just add your voice in there a little more, uh, add your air pressure a little different way, and a single latex, you can do every sound there is on a single latex. Yeah. Um, and to prove that at the World's Elk Calling Championships, uh, everybody that wins is using a single latex, <laughs> and they're, most of them use the same diaphragm for cow calling and bugling. Yeah. Uh, occasionally they'll throw in a different diaphragm just for a little different pitch a little different sound but mm-hmm. uh, but overall you use pretty much the same diaphragm all the way through yeah so. well i wrap up every show with rapid fire questions and they're they're non uh they're non-hunting and conservation questions so you guys ready to give this a little bit of a go always okay <laughs> all right uh what is one book that you guys think everybody should read hmm Whisper of the Gray Bull. Who's that by? Uh, Stephen Smart. Okay. Kent? My, my go-to is Fair Chase uh, by Poswitz. Oh, that's a good one. And it, it's still hunting-related, but there's a lot in that book around ethics and mm-hmm. why we all do what we do and uh, kind of why we all got started. And that would be mine. Yeah. Pancakes or waffles? pancakes for me pancakes huckleberry mm-hmm. pancakes oh yeah <laughs> absolutely yep i just had them yesterday morning <laughs> <laughs> we went and picked huckleberries and they are good oh. Oh. did you have a good year for huckleberries over in idaho well in places yeah as far as us picking them no we only got about a half a gallon <laughs> <laughs> but that takes all day to pick a half a gallon that's a yep. lot of work yeah. yeah uh favorite movie Or a a favorite movie, maybe not your favorite. That's hard to pick. Hmm. That well, yeah, that's really tough to pick. <coughs> maybe I watch too much. Jeremiah Johnson's my favorite. <laughs> that was one of my favorites too. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I tell you, I've never had what I call a favorite movie because I I watch a lot of good movies, but I I never watch them again. So <laughs> okay, I don't know if I really have a favorite movie, but. I remember Jeremiah Johnson, so... That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. it was. 
I just watched uh, River Runs Through It the other day. That's another one that I always get a yeah, kick a out classic. of. Yeah. Just because of where it's at, mainly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cat or dog? Dog for me. <laughs> you can bump those cats <laughs> all <laughs> Dogs, yeah. It's a polarizing dog. question. I mean, people never, there's never yeah. anybody in the middle. No. <laughs> all right. Uh, you're on the road, and you got to pick Wendy's or McDonald's. Wendy's for me. Their chocolate Frosties my go-to. So definitely Wendy's over McDonald's. Yeah. Whatever's handy, but I do like Wendy's better than McDonald's, but I do visit McDonald's because they're everywhere. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> A little easier to find. All right. And the uh, the final question that I like to ask people is, what's the lesson, or what's one of the great lessons you've learned from your life in the outdoors? Try to be humble. You know, that's a, uh, a lesson that I've learned, that if you are too boisterous in your hunting world, it'll come back to haunt you. Mm. But be humble. Be a Jason Matzinger. Uh, <laughs> if everybody could be yeah. like that guy, Yep. we'd all be good people. He's a solid yeah. human being for sure. Yes. Yeah. Kent? Mine is probably the virtue of patience. Mm-hmm. especially archery hunt that's where i learned most of it but it really slows me down really gets me thinking a lot more so i would say by far patience yeah keeps me laid back yeah what's yours marcus uh that there's something bigger than us there the second you think that you are center of the universe the most important thing out there there's always something more important and being out in the outdoors really puts that in perspective and and honestly that's why i uh, i chose to work in conservation is because there is something more important and that's different for everybody um that's not that's not gonna be the same thing but there's something bigger than us and uh we can we can all choose to uh you know give back to that or we can uh we can be selfish and i think that when you're when you're selfish you live a pretty sad life so just the idea that there's something bigger that we should all be giving back to mm-hmm. yeah. i like having you on rocky nobody usually asks me these questions <laughs> back i don't have to i don't have to think about it <laughs> put me uh, uh, that's good yeah you well, got you got headphones on too i do <laughs> i do yeah usually people uh, let me get by but i like this you're keeping yeah, me on my toes cool. yeah well, thank you so much for, for coming on. You guys got an alcohol seminar you got to put on here, but it's been a, a real pleasure and honor to have you on. And everybody listening, go pick up some uh, Rocky Mountain hunting calls. Start calling animals. It's fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you making yeah. the trip to Helena of all places. This is cool <laughs> to have you here. Yeah. Any yeah. final thoughts from either of you two? Ready for elk season. Ready for elk season. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to hit antelope first. Oh, uh, yeah. And then, then go elk hunting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. I am hoping my daughter will accompany me this year in archery elk season mm-hmm. again. She missed it last year for the first time in many years, but she did come rifle hunting with her fiance last year. Hey. And her fiance <laughs> got to kill his first elk with me. Mm-hmm. She didn't get to shoot one, but uh, I love hunting with my daughter. She's mm-hmm. unbelievable hunter. That's very, cool. very good. Yeah. So. Well, thank you again both for coming on. Thanks, uh, Kent, for setting this up and for being my co-host. This was fun. You bet. Folks, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.
Hey friends, me again. Just a quick reminder that if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you prefer. See ya.